Father, we're here because of your grace. You woke us up this morning. We give thanksgiving and praise to you. You've given us your word. Uh, you've given us every good thing that comes from you. So open up my mouth, Lord, and open up uh, everyone's ears as we hear from you. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So uh, because we didn't have Acts 15 again as the scripture readings today, just a if you read it or were just here last week or heard it last week, just a quick update uh, or I'm going to recapitulate the chapter really quick. Paul and Barnabas were out on, um, on mission planting churches and they get back to Antioch and now they're getting disturbed by some other brothers in the church who are teaching, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. There was a big debate on whether Gentiles could even be saved and be admitted into the church. And now that it's clear that the Gentiles are admitted, it is how are they admitted. And so there was uh, the circumcision party, later will be called the Judaizers, are saying that they can't be saved, they can't be admitted into the church, they're not part of God's people unless they get circumcised first. And that had a, there was a, obviously a big discussion about that. And so they're like, well, let's take, that to the, let's take that to the mother church of Jerusalem. And so they talk with the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem about it. Peter gets up and gives his testimony. James confirms that with uh, the word of God. They, James gives his, uh, as the presiding elder of the church and apostle, uh, he gives his judgment. And then they send a letter to the Gentiles about what they should do. And they make a decision. And so... Uh, last week, we just talked about Acts 1.8 and Acts 1.1. Hopefully, you still, everyone has an outline. And just about the model of the church in the book of Acts being the only historic model or pattern we have for the church, uh, being a new Pentateuch. And so we made the point that what you see the church, the church in the book of Acts doing, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Josiah mentioned this morning about prayer, and so look at the model of the church in Acts. Now, it's, uh, I'm a big proponent of, of principle and not methods, and so in Acts 2, when it says they met at 9 a.m. at the temple every morning for prayer, doesn't mean you guys have to only get jobs that allow you to meet at 9 a.m. for prayer. Right? You don't have to do it exactly the way, but the model is that they were daily praying. There were some type of prayer meetings every day in the early church. Um, and then you can actually see the progression of that through the book of Acts. And so uh, Paul and Barnabas have been traveling to plant churches. Uh, they were sent out from, they knew Jerusalem was going to get destroyed. It had been prophesied by Jesus. It had been actually prophesied throughout all the Old Testament that in the new covenant, after the Messiah comes, the temple's going to get destroyed, and there's going to be a new covenant. And so Antioch has been, Jerusalem's the mother church, but Antioch has been the church plant that becomes the model church of, and the base, home-based church of sending out uh, missionaries to plant other churches. And so for the majority of Acts, it's been the focus on whether Gentiles can become Christians. And ever since, um, uh, essentially, uh, Philip goes to Samaria, and he casts out a bunch of demons and the Spirit of God, and they get baptized in the Spirit, and they get baptized, and there's, they had been admitting Gentiles. And you see in chapter 10, uh, Peter gets a vision from the Lord and goes to and Cornelius, who is, is not a Jew, but a God-fearer, um, gets a vision from the Lord for Peter, just come and just get this Peter guy, and he's going to tell you something, and you should listen. And Peter doesn't exactly know what he's even going to say until 
It seems like he gets there. And then God falls on them powerfully, baptizes them in the Spirit, and then uh, they get admitted through water baptism. And so in the Old Covenant, the way of doing things for Jews was that to be admitted into God's people, you had to be circumcised. And if you didn't get circumcised, let's say uh, you, you didn't get admitted as a child into uh, the old, old Covenant, into, into Israel, then you would have to get circumcised as an adult. That would put a lot of guys off at least. Uh, and so there was a, lo- a large majority of people who would identify with the Jewish culture, the Jewish system, the Jewish way of life, uh, the Jewish religion, but never went through the ceremonial circumcision to get admitted as a Jew. And so those were called God-fearers, and they weren't allowed to worship in the temple. Uh, there was three parts of the temple. The, only the uh, high priest can go to the inner court, or the inner inner court, uh, the Jews can worship and, and the priests in the second court, and in the third court, the outer court, the, the Gentiles were admitted. And so they wouldn't allow them to, uh, essentially there was a covenant system that said, unless you did this, and if you didn't, you can, uh, you can come to church, but you're not a, real, not a real Jew. And so with that idea coming in from the Jews, from the converted Jews, uh, they came in, their men came into Antioch preaching, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Essentially saying you are not God's people until you do this. God does not covenant with you. His promises don't apply to you. You can come and worship and give God glory, but you're not part of his people until you do that. And so we're going to see that that is just total rank heresy. Um, but this also is a reminder that God brings, usually when God brings uh, about a clash or a friction or some kind of controversy, it, it's a way of God intending growth to come into the church or, or some type of purity to come into the church. And so we've looked at that in, in previous chapters in the books of Acts, but you can see that theme throughout all scripture. When God wants you to grow, it's usually something that you have to do on your end, and so he's going to bring about something, a controversy, a friction, a, a relational friction that is a, a mode or a means of grace to spurn you to growth or to more purity. And so if he wants you to grow in your family, uh, I would say, in, at least in my experience, um, I get convicted by the Word of God when I read it. The Holy Spirit convicts me. But I usually, that's all just ethereal, that's theoretical. I've got this really deep conviction that I should be a better husband in this way, but it doesn't come into reality until there's friction in my marriage where I have to actually do it, right? We all have that kind of experience where like, yeah, I know I should be doing this, and I have this conviction, but it's usually the relational friction or something, some experience that comes into your life that actually causes the growth. And so if you want, uh, uh, it's all about, if you want that um, to cause growth, it's all about how you handle it rightly. Uh, When he wants your church to grow, he brings about friction. When he wants you to grow, he brings about friction. And that's because on the other side of that relational friction is mutual love and respect, if you handle it rightly, right? Uh, What we see with the controversy about the Judaizers, the uh, those who are coming in and preaching a false gospel, it's rank heresy, it's totally anti-biblical and against Christ and, and what he did. 
to have to uh, come and, and be circumcised before you become a Christian or before you get saved, but that was the mode that God brought to bring about grace, to bring about greater unity. Some of those people we're going to see follow Paul and, and just hate him, uh, and it brings about a division, but that actually brought about more unity, more love, and more mutual respect in the church. And so Paul and Barnabas opposed uh, these doctrinal issues, that, and they would have had necessary ramifications in the life of the church, right? Uh, this is an easy one to see the slippery slope of their argument of, well, you have to be circumcised to get saved, and so you have to go through this covenant ceremony to be admitted into the church. All right, those would be necessary ramifications in the life of, of the church. And so, but the slippery slope is if you, if you have to be circumcised to be saved, what else do you have to do? What's next? If this is the bar that we're meeting and you meet that, what's next, right? It's, um, uh, Jesus condemned that clearly in Matthew 23. And, and so you would have to get to a certain level of righteousness before you come come to the table, you'd have to work yourself up to get grace. And it never stops at just that. It never stops at just this one clause. It's always, they always ask for him. And so if you have to obey circumcision, where's the hermeneutical principle in scripture that says it stops there, that it's just circumcision? Uh, the answer is there's, there's not. You have to obey the entire law. And so the slippery slope is, is going that if you accept circumcision, and you have to be saved, or you accept anything else before you are saved, before you get grace, then you have to actually obey the entire law before you get grace. That's what the slippery slope is. James uh, 2.10 tells us that if you, are, if you break one law, you've actually broken the whole law. And so James says it actually goes both ways. If you break one law, you're an entire lawbreaker, and you've broken every law. And uh, the circumcision argument, the, the Judaizers just have the argument in the other heretical way that if you have to obey one law, you have to obey all the laws before you can actually be accepted before God. And so that's inevitably almost what always happens with any heresy that includes some kind of works-based salvation. So it's either your faith, you have to bring your own faith to the table, or you have to come with some kind of work, and if you view your faith as your own work, then you're bringing some kind of faith or some kind of work to the table, and then you get grace. And so you can kind of identify whether you have that is, is if you constantly feel condemned because you're not working enough to get to that point of grace. Uh, you would be the one that constantly hears Jesus. Jesus really did say, oh, you have little faith to his disciples a few times, and if you were to read that and just stop there and all you hear is Jesus saying, oh, you of little faith and don't see what he did after that, then you're, you and your spirit are probably agreeing with some type of you have to work up your own faith type of salvation. And so the other way we go is that we get grace and then we, get, uh, then we have to go out and work and then we are working our own strength. God gives us grace uh, the other part of this heresy is we get God's grace, and then we go out and do our own works. And we get grace on Sunday, and then we leave on Monday, and I'm just going to try really hard and work really hard and do my best, and then it's all going to be out of my own strength, and then uh, we'll come back on Sunday to get another deposit of grace, and I'll just kind of eat and chew on that for as much as I can. It might only get me till Thursday, 
Actually, I'm sure some of us only hope it gets us to Thursday because we could do whatever we want on Friday and Saturday. <laughs> Come back and get, get cleaned up and, and churched up on Sunday. Uh, that's another rank heresy of, of grace, of that we get God's grace, and then we just have to work on our own for the rest of it, for our own sanctification and for the rest of our salvation. The only other option in the heresies are grace plus do whatever you want. Grace plus uh, total forgiveness, and God doesn't care about what I do. Grace plus licentiousness. And so uh, the debate in Antioch, which is then taken to Jerusalem, uh, is taken not just to the apostles, but to the elders. And so that's something I just want to mention and look at as we're, as we're um, building church community, we're building church covenant and membership, is the apostles were people, if you just look at in Acts, Peter was like there sometimes, he was not there sometimes, he had to go plant churches and, and preach, uh, and he went and, and checked up on the various places. And so Peter, being one of the, the cornerstone of the church, uh, was not there as often as the elders would have been there. And so even here, it wasn't just the apostles who were leading the church in Jerusalem. They had now risen up elders, and it was the apostles and the elders weighing this decision about whether this is heresy or, or which way the church should go. And so this is just simply descending wisdom, descending leadership and glory. Um, uh, and we saw that, and we kind of see that in how Antioch is the home-based church. is no longer Jerusalem. They're, they're dividing up uh, responsibility. They're, give, they're delegating that away. And so this is what leadership does. This is what, what wisdom does. It descends. And so let's look. You can read in uh, verses, where does it start? Verses 7 through 14 about Peter's response. But I just kind of want to summarize it. Um, so when they get to Jerusalem to debate this matter, Peter explains, he's essentially explaining what he saw in, in what we call Acts chapter 10 at Cornelius' house. Uh, and he says that that's proof of two things. That number one, that's proof because the Gentiles, that, that God had worked in a miraculous way, Peter preached, and in the middle of his preaching, God's like, let's baptize him in the Spirit now. And Peter's like, well, I'm done preaching. This is it for me. Uh, <laughs> I'm done uh, they, it says they magnify God, prophesy, and speak in tongues. And because of that, then they get water baptized. And so Peter is using that as an argument that they don't need, number one, they don't need to be circumcised because God gave them the Holy Spirit. And so there is evidence that they have seen uh, that God is with them, that they are already admitted into the covenant people because the Holy Spirit had fallen them just as he, the Holy Spirit, had fallen on them in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. In the same way, prophesying, speaking in tongues, miracles, right? The same way the Holy Spirit had fallen on, on the Gentiles with, uh, with just the preaching, with just Peter preaching. And the second thing that Peter explains that is that by faith, their hearts were cleansed and that they were saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And so Peter at this point isn't, uh, it's a little, I find it a little confusing sometimes. I'm like, Peter, you're like a, you're the cornerstone of the church. You're a theologian. Where does your Bible answer? And he's just like, I saw it. God did it. That's my explanation. That's all I got to do. Uh, 
James is the one who, who resides over the council who confirms it and then says, yes, this is what God is doing and this is what the scriptures say. And so this is at the heart of what I believe is at this time we see a kind of division between Reformed theology and charismatic practice. And uh, I think, you know, the Reformed, uh, the Reformers who have been anti-charismatic for 506 years now, uh, I, I, I firmly believe that in about 500 to 1,000 years, there's not going to be a division between Reformed and charismatic because they're going to see the experience of the Holy Spirit in, on such a large level that they can't deny it, and, and, and it's confirmed in Scripture. And so James stands up and says, this is my uh, earnest counsel, that, and he confirms it with what the Scriptures say. And so uh, the controversy about grace, the heresy about grace, about who can get admitted to the church, who can become a Christian, who can be saved, who can be God's people— uh, is still understood by most Christians today, at least most Western evangelical Christians. And so I'd go as far as to say that my experience with most evangelical Christians is that they side with the circumcision party. They side with you have to do something to get God's grace, or you have to get God's grace and then try really hard. Uh, most of the, if you go to a church, any church, any evangelical church, any Protestant church, they're not going to side with licentiousness. Those are just the wackos out there that don't belong to a church and read the Bible like one, one time or, or something and said that you could, uh, God will just forgive everything and you don't have to do anything. That's, that's not very prominent in, in any church. Uh, but the teachings about getting yourself to a point to receive grace is or getting grace and then you trying really, really hard is. And so... If we are going to have any fruit in the gospel, we have to solidify and we have to understand and we have to know grace. And so that's fruit in our own lives, that's fruit in our families, that's fruit in our church, uh, and that's fruit in evangelism and discipleship. Because we already have an inner gospel that we believe and, and know and preach to ourselves constantly. And you can see the fruit of that just by how you live, how you treat your wife, how you treat your kids, uh, how you work, right? All of that is, is fruit of the seed of the gospel that's inside of you and what you believe. And whenever, obviously, we're not ever going to be effective in discipleship or evangelism on any real way if we have or for planting seeds or, or preaching a gospel of works on any way, on, on works based on our own, uh, on our own merit. And so Ephesians 2, 4 through 10, everybody knows this one. And if uh, everyone has heard this, especially 8 through 10, but we want to just go through the plain teaching that the Apostle Paul gives us about grace. So Ephesians 2, 4 through 10, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming age he might show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, this faith is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
And so it starts with God being rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy. He's got an overflowing abundance of it. And, and in his kindness, he's going to show you grace. And he, and he saves you by grace. He has to say it twice just so you get the point in, in two sentences, right? But he says you're saved through faith, which is what Peter said in, in Acts chapter 15, that our hearts were cleansed through faith. And that faith is not our own, Paul says in Ephesians. It is a gift from God. He gives us the faith that would bring us into covenant with him, into his mercy, and he foreordains and knows it and, and sovereignly predestines that we would have faith. And he loves us so much that he even gives it to us. He's like, here you go, here it is. And we receive that faith, and that is the grace of God that saves us, right? It is a gift of God, so nobody can boast. And so in no way would we, should we, or do we believe any gospel that gives us a reason to boast? And so you think, uh, well, this person did this. This guy started an orphanage. And well, he has no reason to boast. He did a lot of good works, but all of that came from our Lord, right? We can't boast in our faith. We can't, we can't have a gospel that says, I have this faith, I produced it, and then God saves us through, uh, gives us grace, because I produce this faith. We can't boast in that. It's not my faith. We can't boast in a gospel in, or in any way that says God gave me grace and I tried really hard to get sanctified and just to, to not do too many stupid things until next Sunday and I'll get more grace because that's another reason to boast because I tried really hard this week to not do a lot of stupid things. Maybe I only did a few stupid things. And if that's all out of my own strength, then I can boast. Uh, but if it's out of God's grace, then I cannot boast. And so you'll know when you have experienced and when you have true grace is if it will result in humility. It will result in nothing but gratitude. And so I remember uh, this would have been about eight or seven years ago. Just to give you guys a little anecdotal story of I was reading, I was studying the doctrines of grace which is formerly known as Calvinism, um, and, I, and election. And I remember reading through Romans 9, which is a famous passage about before Jacob and Esau were ever born, God had already known that he loves Jacob and he hates Esau before they were ever born, uh, before they did anything good. And that's where Paul leaves it. And that's where Christ leaves it. And I was wrestling through these things, like, how can they be? It doesn't really make any sense to me. And I was working uh, for a tree trimming company, and, uh, and I remember working on a property where there was, like, we just had to cut down, like, a, it was, like, an 8 or 10-foot-tall pine tree, and I was kind of dying. And I remember cutting it down, and there being, I didn't notice this beforehand because I'm not, a, I'm not cruel to animals. Okay, I'm just going to preface that. I'm not. Don't believe what you heard. Uh, I cut down a tree, and it fell over, and I found a bird's nest in there, and there were two baby birds. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's what I said. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, and there were two baby birds in there, and one died, and one lived. And the Holy Spirit brought to my remembrance, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. And I was like, why would God choose me? Why would he love me? Because he does. That's all. There's no other explanation. 
to it. There's no, it, does, it can't go any, that's pretty deep, but it can't go any deeper than that. Ephesians 2.4 says, because of the great love which, which he loved us. That's it. Why does God love you? Why did he call you here this morning? Because he does. I can't, it's not because of something you did. It's definitely not because of something you did. I know, I know most of you. <laughs> it's not because of something I did. And I remember just uh, as weird as it is being with other guys that are uh, cutting down trees, doing somewhat manly work with chainsaws, and like having like tears in my eyes and being like trying to hold it together and, and still work. Like, how could this be? And, and that's kind of when the Holy Spirit like really hit my spirit of, of those doctrines of grace, that it's totally out of grace. It's not out of any, any works. And so the question, if you understand that, and you're reading through Acts chapter 15, I would, it's so weird if you were to just read the narrative. Please read Acts multiple times and look for things. And the more you read it and you just get like a total tonnage of scripture, the more things you read and you're like, oh, that's weird. Why do they do that? And you start to ask questions like, uh, if we're saved by grace and that's what they confirm, why do they decide to write a letter to the Gentiles about what they need to do, a works thing? Right? That's like, oh, they did not say anything about, like they really said a little line about grace in Acts 15 about the letter they wrote to the Gentiles. But if we're saved by grace, then why does the Jerusalem council tell them to do works? You'd be like, you should read, read that and be like, I don't, why? And the ones that they say in there are pretty weird. If you remember, it is, uh, if you look at Acts 15.20, that they would write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, as mostly meat, from sexual immorality, that one's obvious, uh, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Okay, so they're writing to the Gentiles to abstain from things that have been polluted or, or sacrificed to idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled. And you don't really get those... Besides sexual morality, you don't really see those things uh, in, in the rest of Paul's epistles or, or the New Testament scriptures about like, hey, stay away from things polluted by idols and stay away from blood. This is really an isolated, um, an isolated account in some regards. And so if we're saved by grace, why is there a commendation that's largely based on works? Well, James 2.20, everyone uh, should be familiar or have this memorized, is that uh, faith without works is dead. We don't believe in a dead faith, that we just get faith and sits there. We believe in a living and active faith, right? We believe in a faith that works. And so the natural mind will never understand this. They will only interpret it as, I receive grace, and now I have to try really hard and do it myself. And the natural mind will never, ever understand without the Holy Spirit coming, that I receive grace and that I have a living faith that works through grace. They will only interpret it as, as more works. And so those works would have to be from grace and through grace, or else I could boast. There would be another reason for me to boast if I can receive grace and then go do more works. And so uh, Josiah talked about, about faith a little bit this morning, but Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith for us. It is the substance or assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And so faith is this inward conviction, this inward motivation that when you look at the rest of uh, Hebrews 11, 
is what we call the honor roll of faith, is that caused people to do things. They didn't just sit there. It caused them to do things like get persecuted. It caused them, caused faith is, was the inward conviction of what God's promises had said that caused them to leave a land and, and go after God's promises. Uh, God's promises and, and the faith of Gideon had caused them to do things. They had, there was this living faith that was active in them, that was given by God, that was empowering them to do things. And so James simply says, faith without works is dead. You don't really have faith. God hasn't deposited that in you, and you need God to do that, first off, if you have a dead faith, if you have a faith that doesn't work, a faith that doesn't do anything. And uh, you can see that all throughout the, the first epistle to John, John, John 1, or 1 John. And so Paul handles that very specifically in Romans. And so if we've received grace correctly, we understand that our obligation is towards righteousness. So Romans 6.18 says, Having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And so if you are, if God's deposited grace in you and given you faith, that means you're humble and you're thankful. Your natural response, not natural-minded, but natural through the Holy Spirit, your natural response would be then to return obligation back to God, which is righteousness. And so let's quickly, because we do have the time, go to 1 John uh, chapter 1, and we'll look at 4 through 9. And this is a, if you don't, if you don't resolve and know grace, then you're going to misinterpret all of the scriptures. You will totally miss everything. You will, you'll read this and you'll be like, well, I just need to try really hard. But that's not what it says. And so 1 John chapter 1, 4 through 9. I wrote down the reference, but this could be... Uh, okay, we'll read it. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And so if we say we have fellowship, but we're still in darkness, then we're just liars, right? We're not actually telling the truth. We're deceived or something. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you, if you were to read the rest of the letter, that's not a theoretical righteousness that I believe that Jesus died on the cross, which I do, and he paid for all my sin, which he did, and he imputed to me his righteousness, which he did, and it stops there. And I don't have to do anything, and it's just all theoretical righteousness. If you were to read the rest of the epistle, it, it means that you will be sanctified. Now, before we all fall into a spirit of condemnation and feel like I'm not sanctified because I can tell you you're not as sanctified as God wants you to be. How do I know? Because you're still alive. If he didn't want you to be any more sanctified, you'll die. It's a simple equation. And so um, 
that sanctification is by grace. That, that righteousness that God imputes to us when we believe in faith has to be a living faith that works itself out. There has to be step forwards in righteousness. It seems very work, works-based to maybe even new Christians and natural-minded people that would think, well, you're saying I need to, you tell me I'm not a real Christian or God really hasn't given me grace or done anything with me because I'm not as sanctified. Um, sort of, that's a good indication, but it's not a works, but again, it's not works-based. It's all by grace. It just is an indication that you shouldn't be trying harder. You should be crying out to God for grace. And so uh, what happens here in the Jerusalem council is that he tells them to abstain from the meat that's been strangled, blood, uh, eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. The sexual, I think we all get the sexual morality. Hey, abstain from sexual morality. That's a good, that's a good thing to write. Uh, you can see that throughout the rest of the scriptures. So why is James, the half-brother of Jesus, writing about these things? Well, uh, you can see he's not writing to the Jews. He's not writing to the Jews. He is writing to Gentiles, right? The letter is only to the Gentiles. And so I believe that James wants them to live in a way that doesn't offend their Jewish brothers and sisters. He's writing to them, understanding that you have freedom to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I'm probably not that mature of a Christian because that would kind of freak me out. I don't know, like, I'd be like, that's weird. I don't, I don't even want to touch it. But you have the freedom in Christ to do that. And so I believe James is commending them to live in a way that unifies them, that you're going to have brothers and sisters in Christ who come from this tradition and don't experience that freedom yet. And you're being Gentiles have never even been constrained to that way of thinking that you're going to understand that freedom in Christ very easily, but to not live in a way that causes unnecessary friction in, in, the, uh, in the churches. And so don't go flaunting around. Uh, you know, in, in the first century, you want to go flaunting ar uh, around some goat's leg eating, saying, they sacrificed this to, to, uh, to Zeus. <laughs> and taking a big bite and, and sitting down with your Jewish brothers or sisters and then being like, what are you doing? Uh, right, that was a a point of Christian freedom or Christian license in the first century that if you, if you grew up in a Jewish culture, you just wouldn't, it'd be very hard. You might even theoretically, like, I know this, what the scriptures say. I know they say that an idol is nothing here nor there, and so the meat sacrificed to it is, is really nothing. It's just meat, and I know I can eat it. It just feels weird, <laughs> right? Uh, there's various things we experience like that in our Christian freedom nowadays based on the various traditions we grew up in. Um, and so you have to understand your freedoms in, in Christ, but you also have to understand what's even more important is not using those freedoms to offend your brothers and sisters. And, um, and so that's why he, he writes that, and that's uh, why I believe he writes on those things. And you don't really see those things in other parts of Scripture. And and so, of course, he writes on sexual morality. Um, and one of the things we would have seen in the first century is that most, it would have been natural for the elders 
at Jerusalem, probably not to be Gentiles. They might have been God-fearers, God-fearing Gentiles beforehand, but they were most likely from a Jewish tradition anyways uh, because they would have known the scriptures. We don't get a list of the elders or their history. Uh, we do get a list of their qualifications, but we don't get a list of, of who they are. And so it would have been natural for the elders, even in Jerusalem, especially at Jerusalem, to be Jewish uh, because they had the scriptures and they could, it'd be much easier for them to teach with with healthy doctrine, which is one of the qualifications. And so we have to resolve that the gospel we preach to ourselves when we read scripture, when we hear it from the pulpit, when we make disciples, the gospel we're preaching in our families, in our relationships, are, is always based on grace and goes through grace. It starts with grace, it ends with grace. And so we'll know we've gotten there, or we'll know we're starting to get that when we're humble, when we're thankful, and when we have uh, nothing to boast about. And so uh, that's, what we, uh, that's what the first, the Jerusalem Council was about, and that's what they resolved. And so that would open up your eyes to a lot of things in Scripture if you were reading it the wrong way. If you were reading that you had to work yourself into salvation, or you had to use God's grace to then work out your salvation by yourself, that should change some things. And so we have to have a firm resolve to be set on grace. That grace is empowering, grace is freeing, but grace should be a living faith that, that is, I believe, progressive. And so you should be able to look back a year, two years from now and say, well, the Lord has really brought me this far, right? And it should be the Lord has really brought me, not like I tried really hard for the last two years and I'm still here. I got a little bit farther. Uh, I guarantee you, if you have any type of works-based salvation worked into the gospel that you believe is going to result in condemnation or pride or just constant, constant frustration, uh, that's how you know when, when you've got some work-based salvation. And so what do you do? Well, what you do is you drop it. You stop. You get on your hands and knees. You cry out to the Lord. You say, I need grace. I need you. And that should be happening. I don't know if you don't, if you're at work, maybe you should wait till your lunch break, but it should be happening uh, every day or multiple times a day. Because that's the only way that, that God works through us is by grace. And so as we come to the table, I want to turn us to 1 Peter 1.13, which says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? And even a natural-minded person would, would have a hard time interpreting this as, okay, you have to set your minds, you've got to get ready for action, you have to be sober-minded so that you can set your mind on grace. No. Stop. Drop it. Take the grace that's going to be revealed to you, set your mind on that, Prepare your minds for action, right? Be sober-minded. And so when we come to the table, we're not coming to receive grace and then try our hardest and then come back on Sunday so we can get another deposit and hopefully I won't use all that grace by like Monday or Tuesday and, and uh, live a lascivious life the rest of the week. And it's not we're receiving this grace and trying to just get to next week and it's not that we have to, you know, we'll say, 
uh, we'll quote from scripture that says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. That is true. But that confession, even then, which is an act of faith, is not out of your own doing. You can't come to the table and boast in any way. Nobody can come to this table and boast that I'm better than you or better than you because of even if, it, even if I did have more faith. And some people do have more faith than others. But that's not a reason to boast, again. It's only a reason to be humble and, and thankful towards God. And so when we come to the table, we're coming to dine with Jesus Christ. It is, uh, as we read in Ephesians, he wants to show the immeasurable riches of his grace. That's the church age we live in, that he is just going to pour out his grace. It's not, he's not withholding any of it. It's like a fire hydrant uh, that you are trying to drink from. And your mouth is just too small. <laughs> and uh, it's just going to blast you and hopefully it knocks you down a little bit. And so when we're coming to the table, uh, I've been trying to get us away from a very somber, like, oh, I've been a sinful, bad person this week. And that's true. Those are all true statements. Uh, <laughs> but this is a festival. This is feastal dining where Jesus Christ is just lavishing us with grace. That's what we're here to receive. And we're going to go through the rest of the week, and, and we're not going to do it perfectly, but we're going to do it with grace. And so that's what Peter calls us to do is set your minds, get ready for action, right? Be sober-minded and set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's not a far-off and distant thing. That's now. That's in the table. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ for us today. It's in the table. It's in the bread and wine. And so we don't have to think that that's going to be off in some distant future. The revelation of Jesus Christ comes to me every time I open the Bible. And same thing to you. And so that's what we need to prepare for. Be diligent to set your minds on grace. We're coming here in an age where Jesus Christ wants to do nothing except for pour out grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. So come, let's dine with Jesus Christ. <laughs>